We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. I'm really excited to introduce you today to a dear friend, James Owen Roberts is an entrepreneur, podcast host, international speaker with over 15 years of experience in exercise, diet, and mindset. As both a coach and two times Paralympic athlete and alum of both Swansea University and University of Chester, he is also one of our favorite types of categories. He's a third culture kid. So he comes at this with a really rich perspective and has seen many wonderful things. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Heidi, and thanks for the introduction. Oh, for sure. And I also, we didn't even go into, but we want to make sure that we share with folks that you actually recently launched a new book, uh, particularly a cookbook. So we're going to get into that as we get along in the show. But I want to just, can you give our folks a little bit of story as like, who is James and how do you fit in sort of the global nomad persona, global citizens? That's a great question. How I see how I fit in within that box, as I'll put it, is my, obviously, I'm, people can't see me on the podcast, but video format, if they do have it, I'm half, half, half African American, and ultimately, my mother's side of family is uh, European. So my father is US Air Force, retired. And my mother worked for NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And they met in Belgium. And ultimately, I grew up there for 19 years of my life. Uh, Sport was very prominent on that installation. So from an early age of about, I think, 10, 11 years old, and probably earlier than that when it comes to travel, I've pretty much scoured the globe from, I don't know how how young I've been, probably pretty, pretty, pretty young because uh, as we're speaking, I now reside in my grandmother's house. So it, that's, that's changing countries from that basis, let alone that probably like from a few weeks old. And I think from a family perspective, we have a, I call it an obsession because ultimately COVID's put a, a, a dampener on my mom's traveling because I think that's her way of doing self, continuing her self development and learning and learning about cultures. Because when we go, we go abroad or or go away on holiday or vacation, it's not all about sea, sand, and sunshine. It's about immersing yourself into that culture. So I've had the fortune of going to Turkey two, three times, Greece, I think twice, Italy numerous times, Spain a lot with sport. And, and so pretty much, I won't say all the European continent I've seen, there's still probably loads of countries that I, I, I would still like to visit and, and, and venture when it's safe to do so. <laughs> and I think ultimately I've also been to British Columbia and Canada. Sports allowed me to travel some, some of the states in the United States and having family in the, in the US as well. So I've, I think the only continent I've yet to go to is obviously Antarctica. And then Australasia, pretty much Africa, Europe, Asia, and North America. I've done South America. I've yet not not done yet. 
I would have done that if I had continued on my sporting career and competed in, in Rio, but oh well. But three out of six, seven continents ain't bad at only 34 years old. Not too shabby. I've got to ask the question. I mean, I'm just curious as a traveler and as a traveler who is differently abled, and obviously sometimes you're traveling with your team and with, you know, the support services and everything, but I even experienced, you know, with having children and trying to get around with a stroller that in often places people things are not designed for accessibility is that something what has been your experience with different countries and travel in terms of accessibility i'll use egypt because it's more it's, it's it's funny story as well we'd traveled where were we residing at that time in oh i can't remember the resort now Looks it's on the sinai peninsula and i can't remember the place Sharm El Sheikh, I couldn't, there we go, finally got it out. And ultimately, well, that's got a pretty much a history in itself, just that peninsula of, of, of Egypt. But because of where we'd been before that on the vacation of Cairo, Luxor, and then ultimately you go to this, you go to that resort, it's like an extreme. You're going to go from busy, a little bit quiet, and then very busy because it's very touristy. And we decided on that second week of the of the, of the vacation, it was going to be downtime and just relax because we'd done all the sightseeing of seeing the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Luxor Temple, Karnak Temple, the Valley of the Kings, and all that. And this was going to be a time to just sit back and kick back and relax. But ultimately, because the hotel was so big, it's like, nah, I don't want to stay here. Let's do a little bit more of exploring. And we went over to Petra and Jordan. And ultimately, people will know that, that temple from, oh, what's it called? Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the Temple of Doom. And ultimately with that, it was fly over from Egypt to Jordan and then fly back. And ultimately queuing up in the line to get back through their form of immigration they were asking any people that would like to jump the line because of the disability. And I saw somebody with a cane and old, it's like, no, I'm not having that. I'm going to roll up. I think I had shorts. I'm going to roll it up and make it a point that I'm going to use my disability to my advantage. But other than that, probably the most extreme one has probably been the United States. Uh, we flew into, well, via Denver, when we went to compete in Oklahoma for the world champs back in 2010. And I felt like a little bit like cow. You kind of put in a little cubicle uh, with all these people with limbs so, so they can to body search you. So I felt, I didn't feel bad at the time, but if you think of it from a perspective now, you mm-hmm. can't get more, more dis- discriminatory than ultimately, because that wouldn't happen in the, that wouldn't happen in Europe. You take, be taken aside or taken, to something that's a little bit more less condescending and you're not in public view. Um, so that one was an experience, an experience that never happened before because I've traveled to the US probably countless times. Never, never had to, never had the experience of what, what the uh, Denver had to offer. So that was, a, that's probably the extremes. Uh, everything else pretty much not that difficult because my impairment is not that, not that challenging. I don't need extra leg room. I do have the opportunity to be able to take my limb off, but if that was a problem, 
uh, which I've done many times down the years, which probably probably freaks some people out. I was just going to ask you, does that freak people out when you do that? (laughs) Do you sort of do it? Do you ever do it just just to freak people out, or is it more? It's it's more of a convenience thing. It's it's probably part part and parcel of culture now. But I think Mm -hmm. part of the Paralympics, especially with 2012 being the big momental shift to uh, perceptions, I think it's normalized it by them just showcasing. I think the hundred meter dash of, oh, he's been on TV since as well, but on our Strictly Come Dancing, but he just changing legs Mm -hmm. and being very much, I'll call it like transformer. And I did, did use it recently to prove my point as it's, 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 it's it's an advantage, but it's also a hindrance, but it depends on how you view it. Whereas when I did have a colleague ask, "Oh, can I see your leg?" I'm okay with that. Yeah, you've never seen my you've never seen my disability before. It I'm not. I'm okay with that. And ultimately, it's like a kid's perspective. It's it's intrigue. Whereas most adults probably wouldn't ask that question. Yeah, well, it's probably a fascination, and yet you don't. You want to be considerate, and it's sort of if you have the ability to to be able to ask, and you also don't know whether people will be offended or whether they're like, okay. Whatever, you know, it is what it is. It's just part of you. And I think as long as it's done respectfully, I would hope it doesn't come across as an offense. So circling back to your adventures, because you've been, your teams have taken you to many different places, and you've also done a lot of work with coaching and motivational for Paralympic athletes. And what do you find for them? Do you find that they're, you know, beyond their disability, do you find that any of them have sort of the, you know, what are the mental blocks that they struggle with, whether it's in the actual Paralympic, the sport itself, or whether it's in the travel and sort of taking things to a new level? I mean, it's like scaling a company when you scale yourself to a Paralympic level. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen uh, your clients have worked with? It's probably upper limiting beliefs. And I think everybody have got everybody's got them to a certain extent. Even even I did, even with that book of deeming that is going to be unsuccessful based on somebody else's opinion, but it's in your own head and it doesn't actually exist. I think that will form in many different guises of self sabotage, uh, imposter syndrome, you name it. Ultimately, it's up a limited in beliefs that you, you don't believe that you either belong, you don't de- deem that you deserve. And it's obviously coming back from like his, history of whatever trauma. Um, it's fascinating when, when I've, I've looked at it under the microscope for myself because it goes way back in terms of some of that stuff. You're thinking it's so ingrained subconsciously that some of it comes out is like, well, I can kind of see why some, some of my family historically have done some of the things that they've done. Ultimately for me, once I got over that hurdle of, uh, I made a massive boo-boo with this. I, I didn't have the foresight to include postage. So when I looked, I was shocked. Um, but most of the Americans have been okay with going back into their pocket and, uh, dishing out for the for the for the shipping but that was a massive roadblock i put in my own way i thought people aren't going to pay this 
mm-hmm. but they believe in the concept. And I think I've only had one refund. I only had to do one refund out of a series of 50 people. I thought it'd be all of them. But in terms of coming back to circling back to your question, there is an underlying belief and ultimately it comes down to identity and, and knowing who you are. Uh, I was obviously born in the 80s. had a lot of, I won't call it discrimination, but it's ultimately because I got in with the wrong crowd academically. I was berated every single week in, in, in P of, oh, you're not, you're not going to amount to anything. You're going to be a failure. Mm, that can some be of that stuff, very some demotivating. Of that, yeah. It's, it, it's very, it's, well, I use it as fuel, but in terms of it's, it's still deep rooted in my subconscious yeah. because it's, it, it, it challenges me as to, in terms of, well, where do I fit in with a disability? Where do I fit in within race? Where do I fit in within, you name it. It's trying to kind of say, well, even though I don't believe it in my consciousness, it's still a little bit difficult because ultimately it's war of attrition. It's, it's, it's been probably repeated over so many times and I've replayed it in my, my sporting career to, to be able to get every ounce of sweat out of me from a bad sense. So it's, it's, I've used utilized it probably hundreds of times and, and repeated it to myself. Well, this person said this to me, what are you going to do about it? And I think what served me the greatest and what I'd probably teach my clients is forgiveness. Mm. What was that teacher taught when he was growing up and what was he taught in, in school? Uh, ultimately, you can't te- you can't talk to a kid like that nowadays, and they probably wouldn't care. But they'd probably dismiss it quite easily and say, "I don't care what you think, because I'm going to do what I want to do, irrespective of it's good, bad, or different for me long term." But it's obviously served me through my ten year career in sport. But it's been a life lesson within business because it's ultimate. I can kind of say, "Well, this has happened to me. I'm no different from you in terms of." I wouldn't even know what you what you'd call this. It's it's traumatic verbal abuse to a certain extent, but you don't think it, you don't think twice. Back in the late nineties, early two thousands, it's kind of well, okay. Yeah. I don't I don't agree with what you're saying, but it's very much. It will be very much echoed in somebody else that's talking to me. It'd be just a different different form of that experience it could be i don't know teacher saying it's stupid it could be your your teachers saying you can't you will never achieve what's about i think one i've seen recently on tv the kid wanted to go to one of the prestigious universities in this country Mm -hmm. he just said you're not you're you're overshooting you'll never get into that institution yeah it's really it's amazing what people we don't realize the power of our words, particularly when we're talking to children. Because of that, I'd love to circle back a little bit to your childhood and your your parents. So your mother was a NATO civilian, your father was in the military. A lot of people who are sort of military brats that grow up in that environment, there's a culture of its own. So, you know, your father being American and your mother being from the UK, there's, you know, that those are two cultures. But if you were growing up on, you know, by a NATO base, 
in Belgium, you know, there's a whole nother culture just from that space. And a military environment is quite particular. At least NATO, there's, you know, you have multicultural environment. It's not just, you know, sort of American military or British military. But how do you think that influenced their parenting style and the way that they engaged with you in terms of, you know, how you came to be who you are now? Well, it's pretty much my mom that I did all the upbringing because she was a single parent. Um, mm-hmm. My father's been in the picture and, he's st- and I still speak to him on a regular basis even now. He's probably had more of an impact in my adult life than more so than than than, than child, uh, from my perspective, and that's my opinion. But in terms of an upbringing perspective, I was in the well, what what the, the Americans military would call the CDC, the Child Development Center. So I had had a nursery upbringing from an American perspective. With that, I went to the Belgian system from the age of three years old until I was 13, 14. So I was immersed in every subject being taught in French other than English. And that was very much as a second, as a, as a ESL mm-hmm. kind of English being taught as a second language. And then when I eventually, because my mom had to force me to change schools, because uh, I didn't want to, step out of my comfort zone even though the schools were interconnected they're not anymore but when i was there there was a corridor between the two the two high schools um and i and i knew the american school quite well because of summer camps and things like that um very much but i was adamant i didn't want to leave the Belgian system but mom's like well you're not going through uh what i had to endure because if you don't pass your exams, you don't go up in grades in the, in, in the European. Britain's the exception. Everywhere else in Europe, if you don't pass, you stay in that grade till you uh, till you pass it. So it could be worst case scenario. You could be twenty five years old and still be in a, in, a, in a grade. It's possible, but my mom was like, "Well, I had to read re- repeat the year." Came to that second year, passed at pretty much every exam except my French one to do re repeat the exam but my my, my teacher said oh well, i want you to do these essays over the summer holidays of from newspaper uh, cuttings that you like and ultimately year previously i then was dictated that too and had to write it word for word didn't do very well with that so i thought the second time around this is what i'm gonna have to do again he said no james that's fine what, how many exams do you have to take this year? I said one. Okay, that's fine. That's, that, that's, you, you've done, you've passed. And then from my mum said from then, well, we're not going through that, that kind of BS again. And uh, you running, you kind of pushing my stress limits to the limit. You're going <laughs> to change schools. And it was the best decision my mother ever made when it came to, to education because how the American system is set up, if you want to put in the extra work, you will be rewarded. And I excelled in it. And I had a teacher of mine, uh, did some market research with a few months ago. He said, what, what, what did you take from your time in that, in the American, American school in that base? It gave me the belief to believe in myself. Mm. And I went from there and pretty much my sport then there on after was kind of a domino effect year later i was in the national setup 
uh, of our development team in British swimming and the kind of the rest is history. So were you introduced to the sport side of it at the American school or had you been doing sport previously? I've been doing sports since I was about eight, eight years old. So um, the first, I'll call it technically, it's not really a sport. It's a martial art. It was karate at eight years old. Mm-hmm. Too quiet for me. Uh, I only, only, only <laughs> have a white belt. I, could, I couldn't stay disciplined, but I learned a lot probably subconsciously that I, that I use. And in second, in high school, we had to do a demonstration with Taekwondo and my instructor uh, and I, ultimately I said, well, I can't kick and do things like this. Okay, let's adapt it so you can showcase your upper body. Ultimately that's, we're talking 20 years ago. So I think it was ahead of its time in terms of somebody willing to look at a, disabilities internet and ability and kind of say well let's showcase you in front of an audience and the disability is irrelevant uh, and then and then and then going from there and then that's where the base probably excelled because the swim team probably the most, the one second sport that, that I competed in competitively after temping bowling because uh, it's a massive sport in the US and that was actually the sport, first sport that I did. I still speak to loads and loads of the, the families that, because we had a, a, a youth league and then one of the parents set up a summer league so his kids can still compete in the summer and I joined that and ultimately uh, I still keep in touch with them. Well, it's over like, what are we talking about? almost 25 years. So just sort of curious, because obviously when you're looking at a 25-year spectrum, there's different tools that were used to keep in touch. And sort of how has that progressed? Do you guys now have a Facebook group to stay in, in touch? Or is that, do you guys write letters? Or those sort of alumni groups have really evolved as well in terms of the value that particularly during, I found that, you know, during the quarantine and lockdown, some of those old groups have really been revived because you have this incredible shared history that goes so far back to really to periods in our life that were that really formed who we were. So what what kind of tools are you using that one is has you have you found that group to be something that's obviously important to you? I mean, if you've stayed in touch with them. Oh no, so for me it's like reconnecting. I I don't use Facebook groups, like it'd be Commonality between, I'd say probably half of my Facebook friends is that base. Even if we didn't go to school at this particular same period, it's still a connection that has well opened the doors for me because I did a presentation uh, last week. Yeah, yeah, last week to the Federal District Court of Southern Ohio, based off of that connection to the and and that was somebody their parents were stationed there when I was three, four years old. Mm -hmm. And most people assume that we went to school together. It's like, no, it's because of that connection of, how would I describe it as community Mm -hmm. of irrespective of when you went, there's a similar attachment to it. And ultimately we might, I, I thought before we left as a family, it was the place. It's actually, it's actually the people, and it's proven with social media. 
that I've got a connection to a place that goes way beyond that. So the actual connections from a social media perspective are probably massive because I can utilize Facebook, LinkedIn, and that is the, from a business sense, you know, the like, know, and trust. I've got pretty much two of the three sorted anyway because I, I've got something to talk about. But I think to answer your question in terms of the lockdown, it's enabled me to be able to reach out because I've just got genuine curiosity of, well, how is it going where you live mm-hmm. versus what is being reported in, in the news? And ultimately, I get to the, gra- the bird's eye perspective and, and the feet on the ground perspective of, okay, but then it, you can wrap it around, okay, well, let's leave that negativity to one side. How are you doing? And ultimately, some people said, oh, it's been a long time since you've connected. What, what's your, sometimes what's your real motivation? It's like, there is no real motivation. It's nothing, nothing, to, I could care less about the, the, the business side of, of things. I'm generally intrigued. How are you doing after couple of years five years 10 years 15 i think the extreme probably was like 20 25 years that we're talking about but we can talk about old times mm-hmm. yeah no i think there's something so powerful about that i've reconnected uh during the lockdown in particular with some you know some old friends that i went to middle school with and started with one and then the others recognized that we were having this conversation and it sort of built from there and what we, you know, I think part of it, it was such a foundational period in our lives that we really have that important shared piece together. When you guys have reconnected, has that been predominantly organic or has the institution where you all went, the, the was it the American school in Brussels or what was, you actually never said the name of the, the school, but. Mine was shaped American high school. So the actual, okay. what it actually stands for is Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. So it'd be dots, da, 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 da. but obviously it's shape um, okay. uh, for everybody that's gone there. It's I've done it organically because it's mm-hmm. like, well, Facebook has reminded me that somebody's liked a post. I send a message and yeah. send a connection and connect. And ultimately, when people ask me how I'm doing, I can. I obviously genuinely, it's like I'm stressed because I've got this this book to push over to get it in the end zone if i use the that that quote that's behind me on the on the orange one um because ultimately it's almost there i've just got to get the logistical side of packaging it up and sending it and then it'll be we've done it and we've done something that is i'll be mostly proud of because ultimately it's it's a it's a real life product versus stuff that's been okay it's an individual but it's actually delivered virtually or online. This is actually something that people can touch. There's something really powerful about creating a physical product. I've been working on something like that myself recently, and it really, it feels very gratifying. And I mean, with books as well, when you receive your hard copy of the book that you have put all that effort in to write and to create and to design, and then when you have that physical, tangible book in your hand, it's a really beautiful thing that unboxing. So your books, now that this isn't your first book, but this is your first cookbook, if I understand that correctly. That's correct. So That's correct. tell me more about the cookbook. I'm really, I'm psyched to try some of your recipes and hear more about this. So how did a cookbook evolve? And I mean, obviously, you're very interested in fitness and health. But 
sort of how did a, a cookbook come out of you and what can we expect when we open it up? Oh, it's very much health or, oriented. I've probably looked at other books that are out there and the one that springs to mind in this country, I did pretty big uh, from a YouTube perspective is Joe Wicks, the body coach. Where I think his books don't go far enough is it doesn't calorie count, whereas mine does. Um, I'm not saying mine are, mine's any better or his is any worse. It's probably a preference on, on the individual because if you prefer him over me, that's fine. But in terms of coming back to it, it's been an evolution because ultimately it's, it's low carb, there's high protein diet, diets covered there, veganism, vegetarians. I've covered pretty much almost every basis. I couldn't cover everybody because that would be a pretty big book and you're just pleasing the masses and you don't actually fix it. You don't actually, not, you don't fix, you don't resolve it for the majority of ultimately who I'd like to stay within the tribe and, and ultimately work with me on a, on a more one-to-one basis or somewhere in between. Um, so I've spent probably a couple months, probably a little bit longer than that, designing it, orchestrating it. One client said to me, I sent them the sample, oh, you're blowing your own trumpet too much, Shane. In the sample, this is not the, 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 the finished book. But I can't give people the, all the recipes in a sample because there's no incentive to buy it. Yes, he has a point that it is too testimonial driven in, in that basis. But he's been the only person to tell me that. Most people have been, yeah, I want it. But he's already in the store. He's already in my wheelhouse. So ultimately... I don't need to blow my own trumpet when he's concerned because he's in, he's already in and he's bought. Ultimately, everybody else on the out looking in, they need validation as well. Why so, are you different? What's so unique about yours versus what's out on the market? Mm-hmm. Of And one person was a business person and they're like, well, I'm not trying to condescend you. Well, you are a little bit, but you, you're, you are kind of weaving through the minefield I'm quite happy to take criticism if it, it's because you asked me, is there going to be an audio form of it? He said the exact same thing. Yeah. A cookbook is, is one of those things that it's sort of a challenge. It's like, do you guide people through a recipe or is it sort of a cookbook for life? I mean, I would imagine, I mean, I, I have to admit, I haven't read it yet. You, you just came out. So, but, you know, does, is it also sort of a cookbook in the sense of sort of chicken soup for the soul where it's, teaching you life lessons while you're learning to cook certain recipes that I've never, I've never thought of it that way i would say yes because there's, there's information in there that will look at hormones that'll like to educate the person on nutrition is it's difficult for a reason but obviously keep it simple mm-hmm. it, it doesn't need to be you know you don't have to resort to extremes of i don't know We'll use bodybuilding as the example, chicken, rice, and broccoli, and you do that, and then you get sick of it. You don't have to go to that extreme. They go to that extreme because they want to compete, whereas me, you, and everybody in society, that's not the end result. So it's trying to educate people from a standpoint of 
it probably comes back to I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit of I was probably overwhelming some of my clients. They just couldn't take in the information that I was giving them. It was just information overload. So, okay, well, how do I orchestrate something that is beginner level or basic? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, my industry goes against that because it's like, well, no, shouldn't give people recipes. You shouldn't give them meal plans. You shouldn't spoon feed them. But does it work? Yes. So ultimately, I kind of went, well, let's put the ego to one side. My business coach said, this is how I did it. And I went into the mindset of, I, I haven't done this for years. I went back to the athlete of James as a 15-year-old. No care in the world. Let's go. Let's go for it. And ultimately, all the things that I fell foul of, I didn't even think about. I didn't even contemplate them. It was... How do I get from A to B, from concept to to product? And ultimately, I, I went through a massive brick wall, but there was another brick wall the other side. And and ultimately, got I got stopped in my tracks, but I reached out and said, well, what do I do? To my, to my coach. Mm-hmm. He said, well, just be honest. Yeah. It's your first book. It's your first time actually sending something of yours to the United States. Just be open and transparent. I effed up massively. <laughs> I opened up to that and people were receptive of it. It's like, okay, we'll, we, we, we want it. We're going to pay for it. And there's a few I've got to chase, but I just wanted to iterate it again. If it was, you think you've paid for it, but you haven't. It's like, well, I'm just making it clear. Cause then you got two choices. I can refund you. Mm-hmm. You could pay for it or. The third option, when they said they re- when they asked for a refund, I said, "Well, there is an ebook version. Do you want that instead?" Some people will be old school and they want a book. That's yeah. fair enough. That person's when I do the Facebook Live of opening the box, I think they're probably going, "Oh, I've missed the trick here. I didn't. I didn't go with the first batch." Yeah. So I know so, he probably will come back. I've got his address. I've got his email address. Yeah. I, I I'll get him one way or another. He'll get this probably the second copy. Um, so James, the book the, itself, the the recipes in there, are they influenced by your global travels and the the type of foods that you're eating? Or and I mean Brussels, one of the things I loved about living in Brussels, I lived there for two and a half years, was that because it is such an international environment, you have so many great ethnic restaurants all around the city. There's just lots of different food choices. And I would imagine that probably influenced the type of things that you directed people towards. Is that well, I think I think when you look at culture in general, look at one of the trends, med- mm. Mediterranean diet. It's nothing. There's nothing unique about it. That is a lifestyle that the Greeks, the Italians, the Turks, the Spanish, the French, they eat like that all the time. It's not a diet. It's it's mm. a lifestyle. So, has the recipe book been influenced by that? Pretty much so. Not exclusively. But there are in, in recipes in there that have got a, a nod to some of those cultures. Yeah, wonderful. James, I'm afraid we're running out of time. As usual, you and I could talk forever, but we're going to have to close it all up to how can people find your book and what's the name of it? And we'll make sure all of this is in the show notes, folks. So don't worry about trying to write it down. What's the name of the book and uh, where is the best place to find you and find more information about you? The name of the book is Fat Loss and Clean Eating a Recipe Book. 
Uh, where you can find that is, I'm going to share with you the link for the, the Facebook so you can find the, the front cover to see it and then ultimately one of the free recipes that I give away. So you get one completely. All you got to do is download it okay. uh, and it's yours and then it's up to you whether or not you want the other 99 or not. But that first recipe for everybody is all you got to do is click download off off my Facebook and then the world's your oyster from there on in if you mm-hmm. want the rest. Where you can find me from a social media perspective, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and then also I've got my own podcast, The Mindset Athlete, which you can listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Fabulous. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed joining us today. And thank you, James, for joining us. Global Nomads, look forward to more adventures traveling the world, even if it's from our armchair for right now. It's been a pleasure having you join us today, and I always appreciate your time and your energy. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you really enjoyed it, we always appreciate a rating and review. And if you do so, please let us know so we can send a little love back. And we'll look forward to more great upcoming episodes. Until then, bye-bye for now.